Good morning. Our passage today is found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Before we jump into this passage, we're going to need to get our bearings because this is kind of a standalone sermon. We're not in the middle of a, a series. So we're coming to this passage at a particular point in Israel's history. So we need to get our bearings and recognize where we're at. We have, at this point in the text, in the biblical story, in Israel's story, we've moved beyond the Exodus. We've moved beyond the covenant at Sinai and the establishment of Israel in the land. We've moved beyond the, subjugate, the displacement of the Canaanites and the unification of the nation through King David. And we've actually moved all the way past that beyond the high point of Israel's glory with Solomon and the building of that glorious temple. At the end, tragically, of Solomon's life, Solomon led the people into idolatry. And according to God's just judgment, the nation was rent in two, north and south. And so what we have now is a northern kingdom of Israel composed of ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Israel, or Judah is what it's called, um, composed of two tribes. And so at this point, both kingdoms have been really failing, ultimately. Um, the kingdom of the north continually failing. Every single king of that kingdom continues to rebel and go astray into idolatry. There are a few faithful kings in the south, but by and large, the story is the same. And so at this point, God raises up prophets. Prophets are basically covenant attorneys who are arguing God's case to the people, calling them back to covenant faithfulness calling them back from the brink of a final judgment of exile, one that's looming over the northern kingdom from the nation of Assyria. Assyria, not Syria. And so Elisha is a prophet at this time. Elisha is a character that we will see in our text today. And Elisha was at one point the assistant to Elijah, who was the greatest prophet since Moses, did mighty deeds and called the northern kingdom to repentance. And yet God took Elijah up and Elisha very literally uh, took up the mantle of his master and continued his ministry with a double portion of the same spirit that empowered Elijah for his ministry to the northern kingdom. And so that's where we're at as we come to this text in Second Kings chapter 5. Let's Pick up the story in verse 1. This is God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. 
Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went, out, went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel read the letter. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was, was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before you and we ask for your help now as we consider these words Please speak to us by your spirit, convict our hearts, lead us to Jesus, affect our hearts by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, we have made it through Advent, we have made it through Christmas, and in this Advent and Christmas season, we have been reflecting on the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the grace of God has appeared to all men. And the grace of God appeared to all men in the person of Jesus Christ. And we saw in our Advent series and in the Christmas sermon that Jesus Christ, the grace of God appearing, Jesus came in humility, not in pomp, not in self-exaltation compared with all the other earthly kings who exalted themselves and promoted themselves as gods, but Jesus came in all humility. And so now on the other side of considering how the grace of God has appeared to us, the question for us now as we 
embark on a new year is how do we tap in to the grace of God that appeared in Jesus? How do we, what does it look like to receive the grace of God in Jesus? And what will keep us from it? This is, this is of utmost importance for us as we embark on the new year. We all maybe have, some of us have maybe made some resolutions. Something's pretty important to us. We want to see if we, we want to get it done. We want to fix a certain problem. And things always get in the way, right, of those resolutions. Maybe we've given up making them. What is it that will get in the way, that threatens to get in the way of us digging deep into the grace of God this year? and experiencing the power of that grace in our lives. To see that, we're going to look at, consider the story of Naaman, and we're going to consider three movements in Naaman's life. First, we'll see, we'll consider how Naaman was afflicted. And you can write these down if you want to outline the sermon. First, Naaman was afflicted. And second, Naaman was offended. And third, Naaman was cleansed. Through these movements, God wants to show us what it looks like to move into the grace of God ourselves. So let's consider first how Naaman was afflicted. We're introduced to this character, Naaman, kind of out of nowhere in the story. And we're introduced to him as the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, some of your Bibles might not say Syria. Some might say Aram, which is the more accurate um, name for this region and people, the Arameans. Right? Syria is kind of uh, something that has come about, and it's it's accurate in its own way. But we can call it, we can say Aram or Arameans, and I'll probably refer to Naaman as an Aramean um, and speak of Aram instead of Syria. Um, and the Arameans were not really friendly with Israel. They were Israel's closest neighbors, but they weren't super friendly with Israel. They had a rocky relationship. And we get this in the text. And what comes out in the text is really that um, Aram had most likely at this point in Israel's history bested Israel in battle. We're actually a little bit stronger than Israel. And yet they had come to some kind of agreement, some kind of armistice, some kind of truce. And so it's kind of this tenuous relationship right now between the king of Aram and the king of Israel, these nations. And Naaman, we're told, was personally responsible for Aram's victories over Israel. He actually had an Israelite slave to show for his victories, who we met in verse 2 a little servant girl from Israel. And look at the description of Naaman, because it's really important. Naaman is described as a man that had the best connections, right? He was the right-hand man of the king. He was great before his lord. And he is described as highly favored. The Hebrew is, is actually, I, I love the, the concreteness of the Hebrew idiom. It says his face was lifted up. His face was lifted up, highly favored, a man of valor. So Naaman was actually an elite warrior. 
He was a beast on the battlefield. And we learn throughout the rest of the passage that Naaman was rich. So essentially, we're introduced to this character, Naaman, who is the man. Naaman is the man. You want to be Naaman, right? But he's a leper. And again, the Hebrew is striking here because the way that the sentence is constructed, all of these words are describing the high status, the honors, and the accomplishments of Naaman. All of these words, and there's just one word tacked onto the end. Leper. Just one word. And it changes everything. These malignant skin diseases, whatever they were, if they were the exact uh, leprosy that we know today, um, they, were, they were mysterious things. And they were, they were devastating things. Because what it looked like for a person to have leprosy, it looked like death itself was clinging to the body before death. That death was was dragging this person down into the grave, that they were rotting before their time. That's what it looked like for Naaman to have leprosy. And so Naaman was this great man, but he also had this great affliction. And he suffered physically with cracked skin and oozing sores. And he suffered socially, right, knowing that, you know, he probably walked around and caught people looking at him a little strangely. Maybe they kept their distance from him. Imagine everyone socially distancing from you for your entire life. Death had marked him, and yet Naaman was still Naaman. His face was lifted up. Naaman had this great affliction, but he was still, in his own eyes, he was a winner. He was successful. He was great. He was a rich man. He knew people. His face was lifted up. To Naaman, the way Naaman viewed himself is that he was essentially or fundamentally great and only superficially flawed. That's how Naaman viewed himself. And as we, if we're familiar with the Bible, we know that leprosy is a concrete, fleshy metaphor for the disease of sin. That's what leprosy is in biblical imagery. Sin is not just breaking rules. Sin is a disease. Sin is a disease that we carry in the very depths of our being, in the core of our being. Sin is a deadly disorder of the heart, just as leprosy is a deadly disorder of the body. And sin eats away at us. Sin eats away at our souls. It eats away at our lives. It eats away at all that is good in our lives, our relationships. Sin eats away at us, just as leprosy does to the skin. And one of the most insidious manifestations of the disease of sin is our profound ability to deny it, and to downplay its seriousness in our own lives, to ignore it, to cover it up, to say, I'm fine. I got this. 
right? We can, we can try to cover up our sin and say, at least I haven't done that, comparing ourselves with other lepers. At least I still do this. I showed up today. I'm one of the few. Some are continually plagued by a sense of their own leprosy, by a sense of their sin. Some actually are hyper-aware of their leprosy. They're like the leper in Israel, in Israelite society, who was exiled, who was placed in a lower social place, standing in Israel. They were outside the camp. They were unclean, and they knew it. And so an Israelite leper would have been hyper-aware of their leprosy, and some of us are. Some of us struggle with that. We might, be, we might struggle with scratching at places where there's no even discernible spot. But I think the majority of Christians struggle not with that particular struggle, but struggle to actually identify sin and see sin for the serious thing that it really is in our lives. Most of us don't even pause long enough to look in the mirror. Our lives are just go, go, go. Work, work, work. And then when we're not working, we're consuming. Give me something else to do. Give me something else to do. Consuming media, consuming food, consuming drink, consuming social media. Just scroll, scroll, scroll. Distraction. Music, game, show, keep it coming, then work, then sleep. When do we stop and consider who we are? The seriousness, the spread of the leprosy in our own lives. Have you stopped to consider this? We know that Bible verse that says, Be still and know that I am God, says the Lord. What's the flip side of that? Be still and know you are not God and you are a leper. It's easy to ignore the leprosy of sin because everyone has it. Humanity is one big leper colony. And so we compare ourselves by ourselves and we stack each other up and say, I'm, I'm different from them. I'm better than that person. And we distinguish ourselves from our brothers and sisters or from those out in the world. And we think they're a lot closer to the grave than we are. So we're good. But when was the last time you stopped and compared yourself to the one human soul who was truly whole and actually looked and sat with the image, the ideal image of God? Jesus Christ, and looked at him, looked at his character. Because his character was who we were meant to be. He came as a man, and he fulfilled who we were meant to be. How do we stack up next to him? His selfless love and compassion, his zeal, tireless zeal for his Father's glory, his mercy, his courage and strength and truth-telling and his tenderness. It's easier to compare ourselves with ourselves and take comfort with how we stack up 
Naaman could do this. He wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't subjected outside the camp. He still could live his life and he could deal with his leprosy and he could look to his badges of status and look at those around him and say, I still got it. And it's easier for us to do that and to distract ourselves from what's eating away at our lives. But God wants us to face it. And he wants us to know who we truly are apart from him. Naaman is going to be forced to face it. He, God is going to graciously lead this leper who still had his face lifted up. He's going to lead this leper to restoration. But before he can restore him, he needs to offend him. And so consider the offense. Naaman was offended. We'll have to trace the story to see how and why Naaman gets offended here. God, in the story, directs Naaman to where there is hope for the leper. The first thing that will grate against Naaman's pride is that Naaman really had to come to the end of himself and, his, and the resources that he had at his disposal for this problem. There was no solution to what he had, to the problem he had, in his own home country. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. The world offers no solution for our deepest problems. But there is a prophet in Israel. And God uses this little child to reveal his salvation to Naaman. A little Israelite servant girl. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. A person with literally zero social standing right? In, especially in Aram, a foreigner, a slave, a child, a female. And God uses this person to speak his message of hope and salvation to this man who thought he was so great, who was at the highest place, at the top of the food chain. He's being led by the hand of a little child. So God is already beginning to teach Naaman something about the way that God restores lepers and something about his salvation, that it's not found on the heights of human glory and achievement. It's found, it flows through the low channels, to, through low places. But Naaman doesn't learn this right away. It takes him a while. He's a slow learner, but he wants a cure, so he thinks, I'll try it. Right? He goes to the king. He gets permission to go. He packs up his chariots. He takes his entourage with all of his pomp. He brings a ridiculous amount of money to pay for his healing. He has what he needs to get what he wants. And he even has, by his connections, a letter from the king of Aram, or Syria. And the letter reads to the king, when this letter reaches you, know I have sent my servant Naaman to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. The best depiction of this is that I have read is actually in the children's storybook Bible. And in that scene, Naaman comes up to the king of Israel with his letter. He hands the king the letter and he holds out his hand and he says, my healing, please. That's exactly 
the spirit of Naaman here. My healing, please. Naaman and the king of Aram reveal their ignorance of true religion by this. By all the pomp and all the wealth and the letter, they think that the God of Israel is under the thumb of the king. They think that religion is really just a glorified vending machine. You just put in the money where it needs to go, apply the pressure, put in the money, type in the right number, right? Do the right ceremony, pray the right prayer, and then hold out your hand and wait for the candy bar to drop. And God forbid that candy bar doesn't drop because then you know you have the wrong God. That's not how true religion works. True religion's not a glorified vending machine. God cannot be bought off by anything we can bring to the table. He's not under anyone's thumb. He is absolutely free from human coercion or manipulation or pressure put upon him. Absolutely free. And the king of Israel knows this very well, and so he responds rightly by ripping his clothes in mourning and in in despair. And he says, am I God? He's asking me to do this? That's the right question to ask. Am I God? Consider he's seeking a quarrel with me. He, said, he thinks, actually, this is, a big pre, this, is a, this is a pretext for war. This king wants to pick a fight. He wants to, make, to call me, to command me to do something impossible so that when I fail, he can go after me. That's what he thinks is happening. And Elisha hears about it, and he says, Why have you torn your clothes? Don't you know there's a prophet in Israel? You should know. And send him to me so that he can know that. So Naaman makes his way to Elisha's house, arriving with all of his pomp and glory, ready to pay a huge amount of money for his healing. And what does Elisha say in verse 10? He says nothing to him. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't open the door. He sends his servant, a messenger, out to him to deliver a message. And he says, go. Go to the Jordan. Wash. Take a bath seven times and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Now, it's so easy to read over how offensive this really was to someone like Naaman. But it was highly offensive. It's like Elisha's going out of his way to offend Naaman. Elisha is making it clear to Naaman that he's not in command of the situation. He gives Naaman an order by proxy the way that Naaman would have given an order to the lowest foot soldier. And Naaman, we read in verse 11, he says he was angry and he went away saying, I, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. How dare this prophet disrespect me doesn't he know who i am doesn't he know i'm something i thought he would stand and call upon the name of the lord as god and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper he expected elisha to come out and perform for him and do something fancy and elaborate, perform some impressive display or ceremony. 
he thought this was, he was going to this skillful magician who was going to work his craft. And Elisha doesn't even see him. He sends him away. This man won't even come out to see me, Naaman thinks. And then wash seven times? What does this even mean for someone like Naaman? Really? Does, does this prophet think I'm so dirty? He's making me wash seven times, take a bath seven times, and I'll be clean? Clean? And in the Jordan, this pathetic, muddy little stream of a river, our rivers are a million times better than the Jordan. If I want to take a bath, I'm going to go there. This is how he responds to, to Elisha's prescription for healing. It's humiliating. I'll look ridiculous. I'll look pathetic and weak if I do this. I'll look like a desperate fool. And isn't that exactly the point? Isn't that why Elisha gave him this command in the first place? Because Elisha was actually attacking the deeper leprosy that Naaman had, that pride in his heart. That's what he was going after. He wasn't satisfied with just the superficial cleansing. He was after something deeper. And that's what he's addressing. And so Naaman turns back in a rage, but God again has mercy on him and speaks through the lowly, speaks through his servants. Verse 13. Verse 13 is a difficult verse to translate. The ESV is the most, which we read in the beginning, is the most straightforward. It's the most wooden of translations. But it's less fitting in the context. A better translation would be what most translations go with, which is something like the NIV. The servants say, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? You see how the servants are courageously but humbly calling out their master for his ridiculous pride. They see that it's not that hard to wash. But for a prideful, self-sufficient, self-satisfied person like Naaman, it's nearly impossible for him to do this. This is why God had to offend Naaman. He had to offend him because if God allowed Naaman to come and buy his healing or win it through performing some great deed, what would that have done for Naaman? That would have only confirmed him in his self-satisfaction, in his self-conceit. He would have still thought, I'm truly an exceptional specimen. Up to this point, he thinks I'm fundamentally awesome and superficially flawed. And what is Elisha leading him to admit through this act? He's leading him to, he's actually treating him like the leper that he really is by not coming out to see him. Not like the great man that he thought he was. Elisha is leading him to strip off all that outer stuff that distinguished him from the lowliest servant in his entourage and enter the water as a leper. As a desperate, dying leper, that's it. Not, not 
fundamentally awesome, superficially flawed, but superficially flawed. Super, uh, fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed. He's only superficially awesome. And the same is true for us. The gospel says the same thing to us. All of our gains, all of the good we can bring to the table, it's superficial awesomeness. It's really nothing. We are fundamentally flawed. The gospel offends us, just as as Elisha offended Naaman. Jesus offends. Jesus offended the rich ruler who thought that he was fundamentally awesome. Remember when the rich ruler came to Jesus? And what does the gospel of Mark say? He, Jesus, loved him, so he offended him. And sadly, that rich ruler went away. The offense was too much for him. Tim Keller says that the gospel is always first bitter on the outside, and only on the inside is it wonderfully sweet. And you have to work through the bitterness of the offense before you get to the real sweetness of the gospel. God doesn't sugarcoat the truth about us, and he calls us to own it and to face it, to face who we truly are. He says that at the core of our being, we are messed up. We are disordered, diseased. And he wants us to come to the place where we're able to admit and confess before God and our brothers and sisters that we are not okay. Not a single one of us has got it. We are lepers, every single one. And nothing we are or have done can recommend us to God or puts us above another person. The only hope for people like us is the bloody, battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And we must come to this same Jesus empty-handed and desperate as we truly are, or we will not know the beauty of grace. If we come with our stuff, if we come with our accomplishments and our goodness, the stuff that we take comfort in about ourselves and the stuff that we think puts us a little bit above that person over there, even the unbelievers, if we come like that, we're not going to know his grace. And this is what God led Naaman to admit. He had to offend him. So first, we saw that Naaman was afflicted. Then he was offended. And only then is Naaman cleansed. Naaman is cleansed. Look at verse 14. By God's grace, the truth broke through. And Naaman humbled himself. And he actually washed in the Jordan. The gospel calls us to take action if we stop at just the level of admitting that we're messed up, if we stop there and don't actually go to the Jordan to wash, we're no better than prideful Naaman. We're not going to actually experience the cleansing. We have to do something. The gospel calls us to humble ourselves. Naaman, verse 14, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. That word went down is so significant. He descended. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. 
So Naaman is now healed in his body. His skin is made new like an infant, but he's also restored in a deeper way because that's what God did in his heart through this act. He believed the prophet. He humbled himself, and he actually returns now to Elisha in verse 15, and he says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He is converted to the worship of the one true God. And the text ends in verse 14 by saying, and he was clean. And again, we can just miss that, the significance of that. What? This Gentile is being declared clean. He didn't even really understand the significance of it. But we do. The God of Israel is declaring this Aramean clean, acceptable to him. It's a status. It's not talking about his skin. It's talking about his status, a ritual status before the Lord. He has a new relationship with the Lord. He has been claimed by God and cleansed in the depths of his soul. And we need to remember who Naaman really was and why this is so scandalous. Because to an Israelite, Naaman was the worst of the worst. Put yourself in an Israelite's shoes. He was a Gentile, which, as we saw from our reading, the Jews in Jesus' time, even when he intimated that maybe grace would go to the, could go to the Gentiles, they tried to kill him. He was a Gentile, he was a leper, and he was an enemy of God's people. He ravaged Israelite villages and he took Israelites as slaves. And scandal of scandals, God says, he is now mine. He is clean. My grace has covered him, has washed him clean. Brothers and sisters, no matter what sin you bring here today, weighing on your conscience, you need to hear this. Hear that God has the power. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you completely. Grace is stronger than our uncleanness. And so, this is what Naaman teaches us. He teaches us the power of God's grace, and he shows us what it looks like to receive it, that we need to humble ourselves, stop playing religious games, and go down to the waters of his grace, deeper into the gospel, and wash ourselves there as we truly am, confessing who we truly are. Some of us today, what that looks like for us is to confess to someone who you truly are to confess our sins. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed in the depths of your conscience. Just as Naaman had to go down seven times, we know, yes, we have been cleansed as believers. We've been cleansed once for all, but the work of renewal is not done. Leprous deeds remain. We need to continue to dip down again and again and wash again and again at the same river of grace where we were first declared clean. Wash in the gospel over and over and over. Let the offense of the gospel do its work on your pride and bow down 
confess your sin. Confess the condition of your heart. Do not excuse or cover up your sin. Do not justify who you are and what you are dealing with and the spread of the disease in your life. Bring it out and enter the water as you are. This is how you will know the grace of God. Do we wonder why so often we have no joy and we have no freedom in the Christian life and we walk with our heads down and we feel only uncleanness because we have not gone through this process. We have not let the offense do its work and we have not actually gone down as we are and laid it out there and said, here I am with all of my wretchedness. This is me. Because when we, only when we do that will we experience the power of his cleansing grace. Don't let pride today keep you out of the river of his grace on the banks waiting there. Strip that stuff off that you've been trusting in and go down, humble yourself, confess your sins, wash in the water of the word, wash in the means of grace that God has provided. They look really humble, but you have to keep going back to it over and over and over again. It is doing its work. It's not a magic trick once for all that just happens and then we're better. We have to wash. We have to keep washing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to wash us clean from our sin and not only wash us clean, but do a work of renewal in our lives to reverse the spread of the sin of leprosy in the places in our lives that, Lord, you know where they are. Help each one of us hearing these words to do business with you, to not seek to justify or dismiss or downplay our sin but to bring it to you and to come to you as we truly are. Help each one of us to enter the waters of your grace and be cleansed. By the power of your spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.